0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 60 of Inside COVID-19. this episode, why the temporary ban on alcohol sales makes sense in the context of growing pressure on hospital beds, Dr. Sherry Fanaroff's guidelines on what you need to do after testing positive for the coronavirus, the South African Brothers pioneering online high schooling, get a coronavirus boost, and why it's really important for us in the Southern Hemisphere to get a flu shot this year to protect against simultaneous infections of COVID-19 and seasonal influenza. Inside COVID-19, from News. In today's COVID-19 headlines, South Africa's coronavirus infections continue to grow strongly, with a further 11,500 new infections confirmed on Monday, taking the active cases, that's net of recoveries, almost 150,000. This is the fifth highest of any country, ranking South Africa only behind the USA's 1.8 million active cases, Brazil at 600,000, India's 300,000 and Russia at 220,000. Mortalities here continue to increase by about 100 a day, that's the 10th highest in the world. Despite this burden, the country's healthcare system has coped relatively well, especially in the Western Cape, where the worst of the pandemic now appears to be behind it. More detail coming up from Discovery Health's Chief Executive, Dr. Ryan Noach. The economic fallout continues to work through the global economic system, with America's largest banks, JP Morgan, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, collectively putting $28 billion into their reserves to cover the bad debts they expect to come from consumers and businesses unable to pay their loans. This was disclosed in the quarterly financial results released today. It's a further increase on the quadrupling of bad debt provisions made in the first round of first quarter financial results. Citigroup's chief executive, Michael Corbett, told our partners at the Wall Street Journal, quote, the pandemic has a grip on the economy and it doesn't seem likely to loosen until vaccines are widely available. Inside COVID-19 from business News. Dr. Ryan Noach is the chief executive of Discovery Health. Ryan, there's been lots of uh, discussion uh, from every side of the spectrum in South Africa about the liquor ban. What do you think
1: about it?
2: Yes, uh, interesting times, Alec, uh, the announcement last night by President Ramaphosa of uh, the amendments to the lockdown regulations. Um, I must say, uh, I understand that it's a very contentious point and that some people are quite upset about this. But on a personal level, uh, as a clinician and looking at this uh, as for, you know, as the Department of Health would, what's best for the country, um, I'm actually personally in support of this. And I think that it's a sensible move. Um, but let me not say that without qualifying it. Um, let me try and give a rational response. Um, it, it was a very clear experiment during the Level 5 lockdown when alcohol was banned to see what would happen to trauma units, to emergency care services, the ambulance services, um, and to ICUs in the absence of alcohol. Uh, and as I've discussed with you previously, Alec, the hospitals just completely emptied out Uh, And we saw admission levels, uh, you know, at least 40 to 50 percent below what they typically are. And a large part of that was uh, no alcohol and no trauma related uh, admissions. And the ambulance services, by the way, during that period were absolutely dead quiet. Then when the alcohol ban was lifted, unfortunately, uh, that changed almost overnight. Um, And within a couple of weeks, uh, anecdotally the evidence shows that about 30% of the patients filling the hospital beds were alcohol-related or alcohol-induced trauma and related injuries um, and now that's anecdotal uh, our evidence uh, is still emerging on this it's not our own data uh, but you know it's compelling the hospitals filled up with uh, alcohol-related cases uh, considering where the hospitals are today and the pressure that they're under with uh, many people unfortunately ill from COVID, considering the pressure that the alcohol puts on the hospital beds, it's completely sensible in my view to you know stop the flow of alcohol again and try and make available every single doctor, nurse, emergency care resource and hospital bed that you can for the wave of COVID-related illness rather than, you know, alcohol-related trauma.
0: It says a lot about where the priority for the future should be uh, when COVID is perhaps behind us, because if 30% of beds are going to be taken up by alcohol-related injuries, then surely... That's gotta be a focus area, a bigger focus area for the country. But I'm, I'm sure we're learning a lot from what's going on here. Just generally speaking, uh, the projections are another area of uh, quite significant contention. Some people saying we, it's being exaggerated. Uh, others uh, believing that we've still got a, a huge wave to come. What are your actuaries telling you?
2: Just before I step to the projections, just to, to, to respond to your last comment. Personally, Alec, I must say, I don't believe in a prohibition. Uh, I don't believe it's successful. I think it will do more harm than good. Um, And the alcohol industry creates a lot of jobs, uh, contributes meaningfully to the fiscus, is a big part of our exports, uh, supports the economy of one part of the country. That's pretty meaningful. Um, And so, uh, you know, I'm not at all in favor of a prohibition. I think the lesson here is that as a society, as South Africans, uh, we have to find a more responsible way, uh, for legal alcohol to, uh, you know, to flow. um and we have to learn lessons at a societal level about how, how to respond and how to act when alcohol is around. I think that's for me is the lesson. I'm, I'm personally not in favour at all of the prohibition. I think that, that would, that would, to say again what I said earlier, do more harm than good. Anyway, to move on then to the uh, to your question about the projections, you'll remember in our last conversation we spoke about three scenarios that we had based on adjustments to the uh, Actuarial Association of South Africa's forecasts: um, a low, a base scenario, and a high scenario. And we were saying that uh, we were hoping for the low, but running along on the base scenario at that point in time. The bad news today, Alec, is that actually. On our projections, we're tracking against the high scenario at the moment. Um, Our scenario on that high scenario predicts something like 10 to 11 million infections in the country uh, by the end of the year, by uh, October to November. Uh, By the way, those uh, gross infection numbers include all the asymptomatic infections. So um, you know many of those go unnoticed and uh, don't return positive test results. But as a total number of infections, that's certainly the trajectory we're on, sadly, at the moment. The attack, which is
0: 10 million people, so roughly 20% of the population will be. Yeah,
2: that's that is what our high projection says by the end of the year. But remember, as I said, there's a very high asymptomatic rate. It depends which literature you read, but it seems to be somewhere between 40 to even as high in the latest Belgian study as 75% asymptomatic rate. And so all of, those, of all those infected people, um, it, probably half of them are totally asymptomatic, don't know they have it, they've been infected, but they don't show any features or signs of it whatsoever. Um, So from a morbidity perspective, from an illness perspective, it's nowhere near those numbers. Uh, But that is how we're tracking at the moment on attack rate, which is the number of new infections every day per 100,000 people in the country. So number of new infections every day per 100,000 people in the country, we're running way above where Europe was at its peak. We're running at about... 30 new infections per 100,000 people per day. And Europe at its peak was at about 18. Um, So we are, you know, yonks ahead, unfortunately, of where Europe and Italy was at its peak. I think the good news, because one always looks for the good news, and I'm inherently an optimist, it's one of our values at Discovery, the good news is that our mortality rate, um, is very low in comparison to the rest of the world, and this, this is favourable.
0: Ryan, what about the other emerging markets? How is South Africa comparing?
2: We're unfortunately uh, running up there with the fastest in the world. Um, from an emerging market perspective, Brazil and India are ahead of us, both on the attack rate, uh, which, as I said earlier, a number of new infections per 100,000 per day, uh, but also on the cumulative infection counts. Um, they are bigger bigger populations than ours, um, but we're behind them on prevalence terms. So, um, the big four at the moment in terms of the, uh, the current outbreak are the USA leading the charge, Brazil number two, India number three, and uh, we're in fourth place. We have seen a country like Chile also experience a very high attack rate, but they've peaked and come down on the other side just as quickly. And so we all hope for the same kind of pattern that Chile has seen, you know, coming down on the other side of a very high attack rate.
0: So what's the number we need to watch most closely? Well, the compound daily
2: growth rate is a very good indicator of how fast we're growing or what the doubling rate is. At the moment in South Africa, our compound daily growth rate is 5%. Um, and you know the power of compound interest. That's compound, right? So uh, we're running at 5%. Um, We need to get our compound daily growth rate well below 1%. um, And then we need to get our attack rate. In order to do that, we need to get our attack rate um, all the way down below the 10 mark. Um, So we're watching that attack rate carefully. I mean, if you look at the Western Cape, uh, which could have peaked, we're not certain yet, but it may well have already peaked. Uh, The attack rate in the Western Cape went all the way up to 24 to 28 And since then, it's come all the way down to about 16, 16 new infections per 100,000 lives. So it looks like potentially the Western Cape's epidemic is slowing, although it's been going horizontal for a few days now. But we hope that we get a downward trajectory resuming as we saw a week ago or so. Um, So if that's the pattern in the Western Cape, that's very reassuring for the rest of the country. Uh, the good news is that the hospitals in the Western Cape, although they were overwhelmed and although the healthcare professionals in the front line faced crazy conditions and terrible times, they coped, everybody got care, um, they almost coped better than you know other countries and cities that we've heard about in the world um, and that's amazing and says a lot for our infrastructure and our preparedness.
0: That's good news. What about the facilities in other parts of the country? The facilities
2: are under pressure everywhere at the moment, Alec. They're really full. Um, and I, I should say that the people in the front line are working under terrible conditions, uh, long hours dealing with very sick patients. I think the good news from a Discovery Health Medical Scheme perspective is that we don't have, we haven't had a single member anywhere in the country that's gone without absolutely brilliant care. Not one so far. And that our projections and models, notwithstanding us being on the highest trajectory, show that in all the major metropolitan areas, we should have sufficient capacity, including ICU capacity, to accommodate the the ill members. Uh, It's a difficult thing to project exactly because this disease is new and unpredictable, as we know. Um, And so we can't make any promises about it, but it does look favorable I think what's very much in our favor as a country at the moment is that uh, different parts of the country are peaking at different times. We've seen the Western Cape peak first, uh, then the Eastern Cape seems to uh, have had the next worst epidemic. Gauteng is now having a massive explosion of COVID, but on the heels of those two provinces. And the hospital occupancy we've seen in the Western Cape has improved. In other words, the hospitals are emptier than they were. So in a worst case scenario, what we would absolutely do is we would move people to areas where there are hospital beds available. If in the Eastern Cape or the Northwest province where there are lower beds per capita of the population, uh, we had to move people. We could move them to the Western Cape or to, um, you know, Pretoria respectively uh, where there are higher bed rates per capita and where we could find capacity. And we would absolutely do that. We'd probably move the non-COVID patients Um, the ones that weren't COVID positive, out of the ICUs to other ICUs in quiet hospitals. Um, And we would absolutely do that to free up beds.
0: And it also comes back to the way we started with 30% of beds being alcohol related, at least temporarily if there's no alcohol being distributed, that should make a big difference.
2: I hope so. I think so. Um, I mean, if that lockdown experiment repeats itself, then that anecdote, uh, you know, should be realized. Um, And certainly to give the healthcare workers and the hospitals the best chance of not losing an unnecessary life anywhere in the country, ensuring that every single person gets access to the right care. In that respect, through that lens, uh, you know, notwithstanding the huge economic damage and the employment impact, which is severe and painful, this does seem like a prudent move in the short term. Uh, Just to repeat my position, uh, I don't believe it's sustainable or appropriate in the medium to long term. Inside COVID-19,
0: from BizNews. News. Dr. Sherry Fanaroff joins us now. I love the note you put out to your patients today, Sherry, saying, well, telling them what to do if they test positive for COVID-19. And it is becoming a much higher possibility now, particularly for those of us who live in Gauteng.
3: So that's right, Alec, and every day I'm getting at least a couple of patients who we are diagnosing as positive or who at least have a family member who's positive, and people just don't know what to do. There's absolute shock when they get the diagnosis.
0: Rule number one, don't panic.
3: So that's what i put in terms of what do you do when you get your diagnosis. Don't panic, and the reason that you don't need to panic is that The majority of people will get through COVID-19 without too much hassle and in fact 85% of people will be able to manage their disease at home and only 15% of people might need to go to hospital with more serious disease.
0: How do you know that hospitalization is necessary?
3: So it's really important that patients know how to monitor themselves at home and they need to have a healthcare provider ideally who they can stay in contact with or at least know an emergency number to call should they deteriorate. Most patients in the first five to seven days of having symptoms will not really need anything at home much more than supportive treatment. So the things that they need to watch out for are mainly difficulty breathing being the number one that would mean that they would need to go to hospital. So how do you know if you have difficulty breathing? It's sometimes difficult to know, do you feel a bit anxious? Are you short of breath because you're anxious? And there are some objective things that you can look for, that your family members can look for, or that you can call into your GP with and have a phone consultation and that they can look for. So in terms of knowing if you are feeling a bit short of breath, simple clinical things, like can you speak in a full sentence? Can you get dressed without being out of breath? Can you walk to the bathroom without feeling out of breath? Or do you need to stop and rest? And those are the kind of clinical things. There are some more kind of technical measures that one can use. It really is very helpful if somebody can have a pulse oximeter at home. um, And they actually are pretty widely available. A pulse oximeter measures your oxygen saturation levels. And it also measures your heart rate. And there are various levels that we are asking people to look for, whereas if the oxygen is below a certain level, the heart rate is above a certain level, we would tell you to get help or at least ask a healthcare provider if you need to do anything further. And then the last clinical symptom that we ask you to monitor is your respiratory rate. How many breaths are you taking per minute? And if any of those parameters go out of the normal range, then we advise you to alert a healthcare worker basically is if your temperature stays above 39 degrees Celsius and doesn't come down for more than a couple of days, if your heart rate goes above 125 beats per minute and stays there constantly, if you are breathing more than 25 breaths per minute, or if your oxygen saturation drops below around 92%, then alert somebody. I just want to clarify on oxygen levels. Some people have a lowish oxygen level to start off with. So somebody with asthma or emphysema or an underlying illness may never have an oxygen of above 90. And obviously for those patients, an oxygen of 92 might be fine, whereas for other people, an oxygen of 94% might actually be quite low. Those are the kind of things that you can measure. But also in terms of symptoms, if you're having problems breathing, If you can't speak in full sentences, if you are struggling to walk to the bathroom and back, if you're out of breath when you put on a jersey, that type of thing would also alert you that your breathing is not okay and you need to contact your doctor.
0: In December last year, I last spoke with Robert Paddock, one of the co-founders of the Valencia Institute. Now, Robert, the Valencia Institute is a global online private high school. But your history in online education goes back a lot further than that. Get Smarter, which maybe many South Africans do know about, which you and your brother, Sam, built up, sold off to the NASDAQ listed to you. I must ask you a little later about, by the way, whether we should be buying the shares.
4: Because of that. <laughs> sure.
0: But when you guys launched, it seemed like a brilliant idea. What has happened during the COVID pandemic? Have you found that demand for
4: the Valencia Institute has uh, increased? Certainly, Alex. So we launched the business actually in September of 2019. So we had spent about six months before that building up the leadership team, raising some capital, and really plotting the path forward for the Valencia Institute. So we launched publicly in September of 2019. We had our inaugural cohort start with us in January of 2020. And then COVID hit in March of 2020. We certainly couldn't have foreseen that a, such a global pandemic was coming our way and that it was going to fundamentally disrupt the entire education sector and very specifically, in our case, the junior and high school sector. And it has had a fairly pronounced impact on the interest in the uptake of Valencia Institute. I would say the following. The interest has been... Off the charts. I mean, the, the amount of interest in the Valencia Institute and, and online schooling generally, I think parents are looking for a sustainable solution as they look to the future and there's not a, and we don't see a solution or a vaccine anywhere on the near-term horizon. One of the things that parents are looking for for themselves as well as their children is, is just consistency and certainty. And unfortunately, just brick and mortar schools can't offer that at the moment. And, and my heart goes out to brick and mortar schools because none of us could have foreseen this coming, right? We've been really thrilled with the interest. The uptake locally and abroad has been really substantial. And so we're now on a fairly substantial growth path right now.
0: Just uh, if you can, share with us what your projections were like and how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed those.
4: Yeah, so certainly I, I wouldn't be able to share specific numbers with you. But based on our initial projections, our uptake has increased about 100% on top of what we had, had previously expected. It's been really wonderful to see. I think, understandably, a lot of parents, particularly when the pandemic first hit, were kind of biding their time trying to figure out how serious is this? Is it worth taking my kid out of school and placing them into an online high school? Let's just see how it goes with the existing brick and mortar schools trying to make their transition into online. And I think what's been very interesting for us is particularly as we look forward towards our September and our January intakes, those numbers are looking exceptionally strong, more than 100% on top of what we had previously expected. And I think that the penny has really dropped that this pandemic is not going away, that even though schools are reopening, there are countless examples of brick and mortar schools that are reopening right now. And unfortunately, what happens is that when you cram a thousand kids into once, in, into, a, into a single space, It just takes one student to start that infection process. And what ends up happening is that schools are opening, closing down again, reopening, having to close down just a few days later. And it's causing immense disruptions for the learners as well as for their parents. So I think we're seeing that a lot of parents are saying enough is enough. We need to find a sustainable solution here.
0: Robert, just for a recap, what ages do you take?
4: We are a full high school, so we take students from currently in grades eight, nine, 10 and 11. We're busy building out our grade 12 and our one year post matric program as well. We are hoping in the next year, year and a half max to also build out a grade seven option for our students as well.
0: And what is the difference between their attendance of Valencia High School and perhaps some of the brick and mortar schools that are now also offering online
4: options? Yeah, it's a really important question. I think it's important to remember that brick-and-mortar schools have been operating in the same fashion for a very long time. The nature of the teachers who have gravitated towards those institutions have been trained in a particular paradigm of education. And this is a seismic shift for a lot of these schools to actually move into a online modality. And what ends up happening, and again, I, this is not a dig at brick-and-mortar teachers because this is what they've been trained to do. This is what they have done for a very long time. When they make the transition into online, what ends up happening is basically just very long, fairly didactic Zoom classes. There might be some integration with something like Google Classroom or MS Teams where students can submit their assignments and there might even be some discussion forums and so on. But the nature of online education is fundament- needs to be fundamentally considered and built from the ground up. If you want a truly rich and engaging learning experience, that actually starts in the learning design process far before you've ever had your first students join your classroom. So you're designing for the context in which these learners find themselves very specifically.
0: So you guys never advertise. I guess you never have to advertise because of the the bond. But in this COVID period where people have had to work from home and children or their learners have also had to try to learn from home, I'm sure anybody who knows about you would very quickly have said, look, I'm not made to teach my children. How do I get into Valencia? I see you you closed off yesterday another group. How does that whole process work? How has it been working? Mm. And have you been able to take more people in when they do reach those kind of crisis situations in the home?
4: You know, we've been trying to be as flexible as possible while still making sure that we set our students up for success. Um, So you're absolutely right. We have a new cohort, which the applications just closed yesterday. We are making a plan and what we can't guarantee that we will be able to accept any student that applies in between official cohort start dates. But we are doing our best to try and accommodate students who come to us in what we would call kind of midstream intakes. So as an example with this group that has now started yesterday, if students for the next two or three weeks, parents or students contact us, we are doing our best to make a plan to make sure that we do the diagnostic assessments in time to make sure that we have a dedicated team to onboard those learners and to try and get them set up for success. If they're not able to get hold of us soon, we would need to look towards a September cohort intake.
0: Now for that story about the need to get a vaccination against seasonal flu, even if you don't normally do so. Bloomberg hosts Jason Kelly and Carol Mazar spoke to New Zealander Dr. Richard Webby, who is the infectious diseases expert at the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee.
5: And I do wonder in some of the studies that you've done, you know, this whole idea that new pathogens, right, confront us every year. It's not to say that they'll all be like COVID-19, but nonetheless, we're going to be dealing with them more and more as humans and animals interact with each other or come into contact with one another. I mean, this is the environment we've got to get used to, no?
1: It is. And we, certainly, this is not the specific environment we have to get too accustomed to, but you're dead right. So there's a, you know, on a global scale, there's been a huge increased demand for protein over the past decade or more is sort of... Um, people's quality of life improves and and with that you know there's a lot more farming intensive farming of animals uh and that you know really drives a lot of this what we call zoonotic diseases, so this transmission of what would typically be an animal disease um to spill over into humans and so you know it doesn't look like there's going to be end in sight for that, so we're going to continue to see these viruses, bacteria. name your favorite pathogen, Mm. um, jumping over into humans from animals moving forward.
5: I do want to dig a little bit deeper, and I know Jason and I were kind of queuing this up, um, the connection or what we need to know about the relationship between COVID-19 and influenza, and that is something Dr. Richard Webby, infectious diseases expert at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, uh, has looked at, and he's on the phone in Memphis, Tennessee. So what do we need to understand about the correlation between these two?
1: Yeah, so if you look at the similarities between carol, Carol, so these are both viruses that cause respiratory illness in people. They're both viruses that started their sort of life as animal viruses. Um, but it's kind of where the similarities end. So they are different organisms. Um, they unfortunately cause a lot of the similar symptoms up front, which could be a challenge as we go into a more sort of classical flu season. Um, but I think the big questions are yet to be answered in terms of, you know, what what should we really expect if both of these viruses circulate at the same time? And, of course, you know, nowhere anywhere has had to deal with that yet.
5: So wait, wait, so what are you worried about?
1: Well, I think that, uh, you know, the problem is, you know, what happens, what will be the consequence of someone being infected with both of these viruses at the same yeah. time? Um, And that could go in either direction. It could be a good thing. It could be a nothing thing or it could be a bad thing. And so I think that's why there's a lot of people out there now really looking at this question and and particularly in the Southern Hemisphere where certainly um, COVID is circulating and some countries have a bit of flu activity, really looking hard at that question. What happens if people happen to get both of these viruses at the same time? So, what's your advice to people as we prepare for this, uh, Dr. Webby? Get a flu shot. I mean, is it all the more important to get a flu shot this time around? Absolutely. And I think there's probably going to be messaging about getting the flu shot and getting it early. Um, luckily, with flu, we have a vaccine. It's you know clearly has room for improvement, you know, but it does work. And uh, you know, I think as I said, these. Two viruses have similar symptoms overall, so it's going to be very difficult, you know, going into a flu season to tell, you know, do I have COVID, do I have flu? You know, and clearly the treatment for one is different than the treatment for others, so it is important to know. And anything we can do to reduce the amount of flu circulating, um, i.e. get vaccinated, is going to be a good thing.
5: Well, that's what I was wondering. Like, you know, get the normal flu, right, or get the flu, and does that make you more vulnerable and susceptible? I would guess to COVID potentially, or just, I mean, obviously, put you in a weakened state. But I do wonder about, you know, those concerns.
1: And that that's a concern. It's actually quite interesting if you look at what happened in the U.S. when COVID came along. We were just starting to see an uptick. Uptick and flu activity. You know, when COVID, COVID sorry, came along, that actually went away. You know, so it's even possible that these two viruses won't be able to coexist well together. Um, so I think we've got a. It's a usual story. We've got to sort of prepare for the worst, but you know, hope for the best. Yeah, it is interesting to think about it. Carol and I have talked about this a million times, related to us both getting sick presumably with the flu by all accounts we both had the flu uh, earlier this right. year or some some Something, form of right. my wife as well uh and and other members of our family i do have to ask you uh dr webby uh and your accent gives you away a, a little bit you're familiar because it is your homeland with what new zealand has done here by all accounts extremely successful in dealing with coronavirus what do we learn only got about a minute left again so i think what we've learned from the new zealand situation is that you know closing up the social distancing you know can be incredibly successful so new zealand closed up tight they closed up early and you know essentially they have no covid and incidentally no flu either circulating in the community and um so they've got very tight controls of people coming in so this can be managed um not easily and it it takes everybody sort of joining in to do it but you know this virus can be controlled
0: This has been episode 60 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or its app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.